Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our live Wednesday night Bible study. Thank you for joining us. We've had some great messages this week, and I believe we'll have another one tonight as we continue our theme on festivals, celebrations, and play. So our lead pastor, Stephen Beardsley, will be teaching us tonight. If you want to come off of a uh, turn on your camera, there you go. So perfect. So I can pop into the back <laughs> and hide until question time. All right. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being with us tonight. I'm excited to be with you and I uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us. And uh, I'm actually going to share my screen for everybody. So as we move forward in, in our lessons tonight, I will be able to, uh, to share with you what I am looking at. So uh, before we, we jump in tonight, uh, let me review that we are really looking at one of our um, elements of how we do discipleship, namely uh, party. And uh, that may strike you as an odd way to do discipleship, but we believe along with worshiping this God that has created us, learning about him and about how we are supposed to be. Then in turn, serving that all of that is to have an element of fun. God is a fun God. And if you haven't realized how much fun he is, then you haven't been serving him um, and you haven't been reading his word. And so part of what we've been doing this week is taking back a look back into that first covenant that he made with his people Israel and looking at a thing called festivals. And that, that concept, these celebrations, these high holy days, these different types of words that are used for it are all talking about things that God basically baked in to the observance of worshiping him these elements of play, of celebration, of fun. And, uh, and so we're looking at these different ones. And so tonight, I'm going to uh, take a look at and be looking at uh, Passover and communion. So let me start my timer here so that I know for sure that I uh, stay within the bounds so that we've got time for questions. And so let's just kind of jump in. And uh, so I'm going to start with Exodus chapter 13. Now, you got a little bit of homework here, folks. I need you to go back and read Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 actually lays out what God instructs the Israelites before the final plague in Egypt. And that final plague in Egypt was, in fact, the killing of the firstborn of every animal and of every family, including humans, uh, within the Egyptian land. Israel was to be exempted from this, but only if they were obedient to the instructions given in Exodus chapter 12. So Exodus chapter 13 is then kind of where there's a recap of this. And for sake of time, I'm not reading you all of chapter 12, which is much longer, but I'm going to read you the recap in Exodus chapter 13. And so I trust that you all can see it on your screens as well. So Exodus chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites the first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. Now, there's a larger theme here that I'm not going to dwell on tonight about this firstborn and how that is redeemed. But God touches the Egyptians with this plague by taking their firstborn. And so this isn't just a concept of God's, but rather he's using a human concept that really dates from the ancient world about the importance of the firstborn. And God says, this is mine. And he takes the firstborn of the Egyptians as punishment. And as the final, if you will, straw that broke the camel's back, 
to drive the Egyptian pharaoh to finally insist, not just allow, but insist that the people of Israel leave his land, that all of his slaves would leave. So verse three, so Moses said to the people, this is a day to remember forever. I want you to keep that word there, remember. This is a day to remember forever. The day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today, the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember, eat no food containing yeast. Again, there's parts of these this celebration had some constraints to it, had some various ways in which it was to be done. One of them is they were to get rid of all the yeast. On this day in early spring, in the month of Abib, you have been set free. I want you to hold on to that concept there too. So this is a day to remember. You have been set free. Verse five, you must celebrate. Everybody see that? Okay. To really drive this home, I want you to think you must party, okay? Because we've kind of celebrate, kind of gotten a little flattened there. God wants Israel to remember this day, and he wants them to rejoice in this day. He wants them to engage in happiness on this day. And they're to celebrate this event in this month each year after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He swore to your ancestors that he would give you this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Then on the seventh day, celebrate, party, have a feast to the Lord. Eat bread without yeast during those seven days. In fact, there must be no yeast bread or any yeast at all found within the borders of your land during this time. Then he goes on, he says, on the seventh day, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival, think party, will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord. Quote, with a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt, end quote. So observe the decree of this festival, this party, at the appointed time each year. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you and to your ancestors, when he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live. You must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. And by the way, how does that happen? It happens through the Levites. Okay, there's more on that in other contexts. I'm not going to deal with that tonight. Then I want to draw your attention to this final part of Genesis chapter 13, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 13. And in the future, your children will ask you, why are we partying? Now, I know it says, what does all this mean? But there is such an emphasis. There is such an exuberance. There is such an engagement. There is a noteworthy event occurring here such that the children pause. They come out of their own little bubble, their own little world. You know how children go into their own little world and they create their own little world and they're kind of unaware at times. 
they come out of that bubble and they say, why are we doing this? What does all this mean? And then the Lord says, then you will tell them with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. And this is the start of this festival, this Old Testament festival called Passover. Okay, it's celebrated every year. It's an annual event. And it is a seven day long event marked by distinctives, no yeast, and marked by celebration. And then marked by a celebration at the end of the seven days of celebration, all of which meant to cause Israel to remember, to remember. And it's for them to celebrate what? What the Lord has done for them in that he has brought them out by the power of his mighty hand and he has set them free, okay? So a remembrance and a celebration of the moment when the Lord God Almighty, by his mighty hand, has set them free. This is Passover, all right? Now, our theme this week has been looking at these different festivals and realizing that God is a God of parties, God likes for people to engage in celebration. The serving of him is not to be a dour event, but rather it is, be, it is to be an event of celebration. Are there days of fasting? Absolutely. Are there days of repentance? Absolutely. But in the midst of serving God, there should be joy and happiness and celebration. We should be having a good time. God is a God who enjoys laughter. Why do you think he gave you the ability to laugh? God is a God who is corny and funny. You know why I know this? Because the scripture tells us that each of us are made in his image and after his likeness. And there are an awful lot of you out there who are corny and funny, one of which being my father-in-law, another of which being my, my wife. They drive me crazy. I don't like that kind of humor, but God must like that kind of humor because they're made in his image and after his likeness. All of us have a sense of humor if we can stop being, being so tied up in the troubles of life to recognize the power of our mighty God. Israel is being set free from slavery, over 400 years of slavery, and God has brought them out with a mighty right hand, and he gives them a party to remember it by every single year at the same time with traditions. One of the things that my family has is a tradition that you all know it, when it's snow time, you know what happens to the Beardsleys. We head north. We go to Vermont. And I can tell you that one of the reasons we so much enjoy our vacation is because we have traditions. There are certain places that we go. There are things that we do. There are routines that we have built up. And we enjoy them because not only do they remind us uh, or not only are they fun to do in the present, but they remind us of fun times in the past. And so you'll find us at times sitting around telling the story about how this happened at this time. Or do you remember when we went down this spot and we literally, we travel the same roads, we go by the same landmarks and we only go there once a year, but every year we go back and we come by these places 
and we remi we're reminded, you know, there's this one passage or this one pasture that we go by and, and occasionally one of us will look over and go, do you remember when we slid down that hill and mom nearly cut her nose off? Uh, that's a whole nother story. I won't tell you all of that tonight, but there are memories and there's laughter. Invariably, we laugh. We enjoy ourselves because remembering and celebrating and having a good time and partying is in our human nature. Now, many of you have come from the world. You know what it's like to try to party when you aren't happy, to try to party in a way that uh, didn't, give you, didn't give you happiness. It didn't give you the mirth. Why do we seek that as humans? Because that's how God created us. In his kingdom, we are meant to celebrate. Now, let's fast forward into the New Testament, because do we still celebrate Passover? The simple answer is no, we do not. We do not still celebrate Passover. But what do we do? Well, we have one that's kind of similar. In fact, this one's a little easier. I feel guilty for having getting the opportunity to teach this tonight because the application in our, in our present day is real explicit. Some of the other festivals are not quite as explicit. This one's very explicit. So let's turn to another passage of scripture, specifically Luke chapter 22. Now, for those of you that don't know, what has preceded this is that Jesus is now headed to Jerusalem. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be crucified. And he wants to celebrate what has come to be known as the Last Supper. Sometimes it's used by its Greek word, the Eucharist. Other times it is, we use a more uh, Protestant term called communion. There's various words that are used here. All right. So let's jump in in Luke chapter 22. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Now, he has sent his disciples in ahead of time to prepare this. So he says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute. I thought the meaning of the Passover meal was actually already fulfilled in the first Passover. And there's your first inkling that something new is happening here. This is not just a Passover meal. There's something else going on. Verse 17 says, then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. So twice now we've seen that he's, he's reiterated that there's something in the future coming. Okay, there's something in the future coming, and that this meal, whatever it is, is about that future. Verse 19, he says, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in, there it is, remembrance of me. Now, up until now, you'd have thought Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal. You would think that they were remembering the exodus out of Egypt. You would think this is God's mighty right hand, except here Jesus has taken in this Passover season and he has said, take this bread, this is my body. This is not about unleavened bread. This is not about the Passover meal. This is about my body. And when you eat this bread, you remember me. Verse 20, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. In order for there to be a new covenant, there has to be a preceding covenant. 
seems pretty clear that he's referring back to the covenant between Israel and their God. There's a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, what's interesting, a little side note for all of you that are a little bit biblical studies geeks like me, Paul seems to have pulled almost word for word. In fact, you can go and compare these passage in Luke versus 1 Corinthians. He seems to have pulled almost word for word the phrasing that we find uh, preserved in Luke. And so I want to read it to you because Paul adds a little something to this. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, he says, I pass on to you, Corinthians, what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it, then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can even see on the screen here, if you compare from verse 19 of Luke down to verse 24 of Corinthians, it's word for word. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. He leaves off the which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Okay, so Paul's almost word for word there. He leaves off that one phrase. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. So here Paul reiterates twice. Jesus only is preserved in Luke as reiterating it first with the bread. Here Paul takes this theme of remembrance and drives it home with both. And then he adds, why I've read it to you tonight is verse 26. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Now let's pause there for a moment. Because this is where Christians, and there's a lot of preaching that I've done before, so those of you that have been around, I'm not going to belabor this point. Those of you that haven't, let me refer you, go to our website, newarkupc.info, and do a search for communion. That's all you'll have to do. It should bring up a number of messages that are communion messages, and you can hear a number of places where I have dealt with this. Also, those of you that have access to old podcasts, you can go back and find even more of those sermons where I have dealt with this. Communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, has come to be a sad time. Now, I, I don't want to take away the importance of coming and being right with your brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 11 is about being right with the body of Christ. It is not about being right with God in the sense of that somehow you are worthy you are never worthy of Christ. That's why there's grace and there's mercy. Paul is dealing in 1 Corinthians 11, and again, I'm going to do this very quickly for sake of time, but 1 Corinthians 11 is not about you coming and eating bread or drinking wine or drinking grape juice, and you haven't repented of your sins, and therefore God's going to strike you dead or going to cause you to be sick. When you Take the body and blood of the Lord unworthily. It is because you have shown dishonor to your brothers and your sisters. This is what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 11. You can go and read the larger context. They are showing disrespect to one another, and Paul is saying, you all are now the body of Christ. How can you honor the literal body of Christ that was broken and whose blood was shed on Calvary by taking bread and taking wine, how can you honor that? How can you declare that? How can you remember that? When his body that now exists 
namely the church, you're being disrespectful to. This is what he's correcting. But because of his injunction, which by the way, if you go and read the latter part after this passage, you'll find that Paul, it's a temporary injunction. He says, I'll set everything in order when I come. This temporary injunction has caused Christians to see communion as a very sober event. But the problem is, is that even if the Last Supper was not the Passover, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, I'm going to take a slight digression of maybe five minutes to kind of address that very quickly, give you my opinion on it. Everybody hear that? Opinion. It's not going to be definitive. You all are free to think something different, but I'll give you my opinion. Without question, whether the Last Supper is a Passover meal or not, it is in the time of Passover, and it is modeled after the festival of Passover. Passover is a celebration. Passover is a festival. Passover, to put it in our modern vernacular, is a party. So now I want you to think back, dear Christian. When's the last communion you celebrated that it actually felt like a party? Yeah, we've got some work to do to reclaim this festival because we've taken something that is about remembering Jesus. Now, part of it is, is we're remembering his death. But here's the key point to understand. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. This is why we party. This is why we celebrate. This is why there is to be happiness and joyousness at the time of communion. It is not that we're celebrating that he died, but we're celebrating that through his death and resurrection, sin has been broken, just as Pharaoh's rule was broken, and we have now been set free. We're remembering this. We're declaring this. We're doing it in a manner so that others are reminded of this, just as Israel year after year would remind their children why are we doing this? Why are we partying? Why are we eating festivals or eating and feasting for seven days and then having a festival at the end of that seven days? Why are we doing this? Because the Lord with his mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the Lord with his mighty hand brought us out of sin. That is to be celebrated. That is not to be going back and feeling bad and, and overwhelmed and, and dreary and all of those things. All right. Now let's do an excursus for those of you that want to know what that means. It's in parentheses. It's a digression. It means it's a slight rabbit trail. I am going to submit to you that in fact, the last supper does not equal the Passover. Okay. Now I know what I just read you in Luke. Okay. Let's use Mark, for example. Okay. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, without question, all present the last supper as being a Passover meal. Let me use Mark to lay this out for you. And then I'll show you why I think, my opinion, very quickly, that it is not the Passover meal. It's happening in Passover season, and it is modeled after a Passover meal. It has all the themes of Passover meal. Now, I don't know where my father-in-law still stands on this. If you want an opposing opinion on this, I think he's got an opposing opinion. So if you want to get the other side of this discussion, go and ask him, and, and you can put the two together, and we can all just have a have a a uh, an interesting time looking at this from different angles. Um, this is not something that's heaven or hell. We don't have to agree or disagree on this, uh, but I want you to see something with regard to it. So Mark 14, verse 1, I'm going to use Mark. Mark 14, verse 1 says, it was now two days before Passover, 
and the festival, notice that, the celebration, the party of unleavened bread. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. So Mark 14, 1, we've got two days before Passover. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So this is the day of preparation. This is the day before Passover. Does everybody see that? Verse 16, so the two disciples went into the city, found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there, okay? So everything's tracking. Luke and Matthew are in agreement in how they, how they render this. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. So we fast forward. This, we've gotten Jesus arrested, everything else. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. You see that? The day before the Sabbath. So Jesus has already eaten the Passover meal. He's now gotten arrested. He's been tried. And now he's been taken and crucified. How does that work? Because if he's celebrating the Passover meal on Passover, but then all of his arrest and his crucifixion occurs on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, how did he celebrate the Passover? Is it just the day of preparation for the Sabbath? Or is, in fact, this language of the day of preparation really referring to the Passover? Now, John complicates it and kind of gives us a little hint, because the Gospel of John says it was about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. And those of you that know the story, this is why they're concerned with breaking his legs, which they did not because Jesus had already died. This is why Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are very concerned to get Jesus down and put into a tomb. This is why they can't yet put the spices on his body. The ladies have to come back three days later because Passover is on top of them. So Jesus is crucified on the day of preparation, the day before. Mark and John agree that it's on a day of preparation, but is it the day of preparation before Passover? I submit that I believe it is. That's why I believe that the Last Supper and the Passover are not equal. They're not the same. Without question, the Last Supper is happening in the season of Passover. So the motifs, the themes, the ideas of this festival are all through communion. And you notice I drew that in as I talked about it. Now, why does this even matter? Well, I'm going to tell you that what I think is going on here is that what's important is, is whether it is in fact Passover that Jesus celebrated, or it was during the season of Passover, but he was crucified before, and therefore he ate a meal with his disciples, maybe even styled after the Passover meal, but it was not the actual Passover meal because he dies the day before Passover. Either way, the imagery of this festival of Passover is all through the imagery of this, I would submit, New Testament festival, celebration, remembrance, party of communion. Now, let me fast forward a little bit and draw your attention to two other passages as I try to wrap this up. I've got about six more minutes. So let's talk about the Lord's Day, okay? Talk about a hard right turn. Well, actually, it's not. It's not a digression at all. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Peter preaches his sermon. 3,000 souls come to the Lord, and we're described here in verse 42 with what I call, many of you have heard me talk about this as the Acts 2 model. 
all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals. And I got to be straight with you. The Greek does not say including the Lord's Supper. But most of us who study the scriptures and particularly understand 1 Corinthians, which I've already read to you, understand that those meals would have included, at least one of those meals at some point, at some interval, would have included the celebration of the Lord's Supper or communion. And finally, to prayer. Now we get this verified again later in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where we're told on the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Now again, it just says in the actual Greek to break bread. But here again, the NLT has taken this understanding that when they got together on the first day of the week to break bread, that first day of the week had come to be what we would call church, the gathering together of the believers. Many of those early believers were Jewish believers, so they would have continued to celebrate Sabbath, which is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, which meant that then they would turn around and they would celebrate Sunday as the day in which the Lord resurrected. So there was kind of a back-to-back for the Jewish believers. Many of the first Christians, even of the Gentile church, were God-fearers. These were people who had been around Jewish synagogues that Paul had converted to Christianity. And so they were aware of the Sabbath, may have even participated in it or in some elements of it, and may have continued to do so along with the Lord's Day. So what's happening here is that on this first day of the week, known as the Lord's Day, because it was the day the Lord rose from the dead, this is the day in which they are now celebrating and remembering. And history tells us that they would do this every single week. Okay, and that's preserved in some of the some churches to this day, that every time you go to church, you celebrate communion, you celebrate the Eucharist, you remember it's a part of it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 shows us that it was celebrated originally in a meal. And this is why in Acts 2 verse 42 and Acts 20 verse 7, our translators bring clarity to the text that in sharing these meals, it was not just they were having, you know, a cookout. But rather, this meal was most likely meals that they shared together as a part of fellowship, yes, but it was also meals that included the celebration, the festival, the remembrance of the Lord's Supper. And we see this again in Acts 20, verse 7, with Paul meeting with not just Jewish believers, like we see in Acts chapter 2, but with Gentile believers in Acts chapter 20, where they've met along uh, where the local believers have been gathering together. So what is my conclusion? My conclusion is this. Number one, the Lord's Day was a celebration of the Lord's resurrection, of his ascension, but that it included a meal in which the church remembered and celebrated, think partied, about the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. And the reason they could party about death is because he had risen. It was occurring on the day dedicated to remembering his resurrection. In other words, folks, as Christians, you can't really celebrate the Lord's death without remembering that he rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. His death was the preamble that paid for our sins in order to get to the main event. Namely, he conquered sin and death and rose from the dead. This remembrance, this celebration parallels the remembrance of the Jewish festival 
and the celebration of Passover. And this parallel was so clearly, here's my, here's my closing part. This is an opinion, but this parallel was so clearly in the minds of the early Christians that they, in my opinion, seem to have combined or conflated the two festivals in some of the Gospels when they retold the story of Jesus. Bottom line, whether you agree with that point or not, whether you think you're going to go with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or whether you're going to go with John, or whether you're going to find a way to make them marry up, Bottom line, when we declare the Lord's death until he comes, it is a celebration of God's victory over sin. It is not time to weep. It's party time. The Israelites partied every year to remember how God had brought them out with a mighty right hand. He had delivered them from slavery of the Egyptians. And you and I, when we come to communion, however frequent or infrequent we celebrate it, we need to come ready not to weep, but to rejoice and to shout and to be excited and to enjoy, because with that same Matty right hand, Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on Calvary, and rose again from the dead, and conquered sin, and set us free from the slavery of sin. Hallelujah! That's why it's a party time. All right, Joyce, I might have run over a minute, but pretty close. Not too bad for me. So, questions time. We do have questions, but I wanted to ask you something. All right, you have the prerogative. You have the microphone. Nobody else can force it. They can yell at you later, but that's all. <laughs> um, so, as you were speaking, my mind went back to, remember on February 23rd, we actually got two prophecies. Yes, ma'am. So the second one, and do you want me to read that one? Because the one that came through Dr. Payton? Uh -huh. or, okay, sure, absolutely, read it. Hand in hand, okay, so. Absolutely, read it. As I said, at the celebration of the first Passover, and just as important, this day and this prophetic word shall live in memorial. In years to come, this day shall be remembered as the day that Newark came into my complete will. This day shall be remembered as the beginning of all that I promised for the last 49 years. And this day shall be a day of reorientation each year that calls the church to learn, to serve, to love, and to play in the presence of the creator. Absolutely. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know the reference, basically a month before coronavirus hit, by the way, this is why I am not freaking out in the midst of COVID. Just got to tell you folks, I'm not. Because God seemed to know what was going on. One month before I came home, preached a sermon that I am completely uncomfortable preaching. I, I, I was wigged out by it, but I preached a prophetic message, what I call a prophetic message out of Zechariah. You can go back and listen to that, hear all of the, those various points. It was preceded by a tongues and interpretation, so a word from the Lord. That's where that we have that phrase that ended with this. <laughs> it makes so much sense now. There's coming a time where I am all that you will have but I will be all that you need. Then I preach that prophetic word, which I'm holding on to that. I believe some of those promises are being put into place right now, and we're going to see them fulfilled in the upcoming uh, months and years. And then Sister Joyce referred to our good friend and, and probably most prolific speaker from outside in this current season, Dr. Joey Payton, in which he texted me. He would 
He's an evangelist and travels all around the country. And so he many times tunes into our services. And um, he texted me and, and shared what he had felt in the Lord. And that's what she just read to you. And notice again, what the Lord spoke to him and was shared with us was picking up this language of the Passover and of remembrance and of celebration and of reorientation. I could, did not go into it tonight, Joyce, but Passover was also the moment where Israel began the long journey of ceasing to act and think like slaves and to begin to act and think like a free and conquering, not conquered, conquering people. Now, it took years for that to happen. I would argue that communion is also that moment in time where we must reiterate over and over, we come back because life feels like we're still in, uh, under the bondage of sin. We fail, we struggle, we have all these things. And communion is what reminds us, no, the back of sin has been broken. And we need to celebrate in that clarity, even when we have not yet fully realized it within our lives. All right. Uh, well, first question. Um, what else do historians know, not biblical, but historical, about their Lord's Day? Oh, this is a challenge for us because, uh, and this is one of my areas that I'm actually trained in, okay? In fact, I've had, I've had to fight many, many times in my, in my academic career because many people have wanted to really slot me and hold me into his, history. In fact, until I left Urshan Graduate School, I was the only prof except for one time that my good colleague, Nick Cohen, many of you know him, he taught the course one time in my stead, but I taught early Christian history every single year, every single occasion of it. Um, and I had to fight not to get kind of stuck in that because I'm actually, my training is not just in history, but it's in biblical studies. The problem with history is that we lose so much of it. If it doesn't get written down, or if it doesn't get preserved in what are called material uh, material sources, so that might be text, but it also might be pottery, it might be um, pictures, mosaics, uh, it might be artwork, different kinds of things. Unless it's in, unless it's preserved either within written text or material culture is what we call it, um, we lose so much of it. And so what happens is, is historians have to kind of piece it together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. So imagine you have a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, but you're missing, say, 500 pieces of it. You can put together the other 4,500 pieces and by inference begin to figure out what's missing. But you still, it's missing. And you could have a huge section that's missing. And so you have a hard time figuring it out. The other is, is that the further back you go, the more the pieces are missing. And so what happens is, is history gets layered on top of history, and uh, that becomes the problem. So there are several things that are harder to establish because you also have history that predates. So for the Jewish Jesus believer, that's the way I talk about someone who has been a Jew, who is a Jew, but then believes that Jesus is the Messiah they are going to be more inclined to see the Lord's Day and to even culturally structure it the way that things were structured within their synagogues. And so that has to be taken into account. But then is that what happened with the Gentile church? Now, initially, there's a good chance that that did because many of the Gentile believers were, in fact, 
I used the term earlier, God-fearers. These were people who liked the Jewish lifestyle. They weren't so keen on getting the foreskin cut off. Circumcision was not quite as exciting for them, both culturally and just frankly, pain. Okay. And so many times they would forego the full conversion process, but they would live by a lot of the rules. They would follow a lot of the customs. And the Jews in the diaspora learned to tolerate them and even embrace them because they actually became a cushion to the larger culture. These were people who knew the Gentile culture. They also had money. And so you find we have inscriptions on synagogues in throughout the Roman Empire that, that list people who were clearly not Jews who contributed vast sums of money to build the synagogue or to be involved. We even see this in the Gospels. Uh, one of the Roman centurions is cited as building a synagogue for us. Okay, So they were aware. But over time, more and more Gentiles, non-God-fearers came to God. And so over time, it would have shifted. The things we know that seem to be steady is that they would meet on Sunday, the Lord's Day, tied to resurrection. Also, they love to give a poke in the eye because one of the major gods in that period of the Roman Empire was, in fact, the sun god. And there was this concept called henotheism, which was the idea that there was one god above all the other gods. So it wasn't monotheism, but it was the idea that there was one supreme god. And many times that supreme god was the sun god. So the Christians would say, well, you all are worshiping the sun god. Well, we know who the real sun is. And so Sunday was a way, it was originally named after the sun god. Well, the Christians kind of took that over. And so we know that they celebrated on that day. That's one thing that we know. Second thing that we know is that they would celebrate with meals together. And we see this in Corinthians, but we also see it in historical documents that they would come together. And we even have Roman uh, documents that trying to describe these Christians and who are they and how do they act. And one of the things is they don't seem to do much. They come together and they eat together and they worship this God called Jesus. Okay. So we know they ate together and based upon our understanding of how things operated with the, the Lord's supper, being a part of a meal, even in Jesus, he ate a meal with them, whether it was Passover meal or not, he ate a meal and then he would celebrate communion or took the bread, took the wine. The Christians would do the same. And in fact, I would argue they continue to do the same until people took Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 11 and misunderstood. He had a temporary corrective and it became a permanent corrective. So we know they would celebrate the Lord's Supper on that day as well. Um, there are some sources that point us to that it was along with this day of celebration. There are that I have read and, and looked at things in the past. It's harder to establish some of these things like they took it all the way that you didn't fast on Sunday because it was a day of celebration, celebration of the Lord's resurrection, celebration of the Lord's um, death and his burial and his taking away of our sins. And so, um, again, as I mentioned, many times this would continue alongside of the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. By the time we reach the second century, though, that's going to have died away because most Jewish Christians, unfortunately, uh, got caught up in the politics of the day. And the politics of the day, both in around 70 AD and then also again in 130, was a rebellion against the Romans. And because they got the Jewish Christians got caught up in the politics of the day, the Romans exterminated them. They got killed along with all the other Jews. I will not go into a diatribe. But hear me, 
hear me very clearly, in less than a week, if you've not already voted, you should vote. But when you vote, do not get caught up in the politics of the day. God is not an American, and he's not real concerned, not to the level we all are, about what happens on November 3rd. He is the God of the world. And if you get too caught up in the politics of this world, you may get exterminated. Now, I think all those Jewish Christians are probably going, we're probably going to see them in heaven, but they cease to have an influence in the church because they literally just disappeared. They got exterminated, and only the Gentile Christians survived. Whole lesson for our current season here. I won't go into it too much, but I think you all can extrapolate out from that. So be careful with your politics and never reject your brother or sisters who you are Christians, you are blood-bought over political uh, human things. Christ will spank you and spank you hard if you reject a brother or sister in Christ who he died for because you have a difference of opinion on politics. And by the way, he won't be the only one to spank you. Right behind Jesus will be me. That's one of the few things that you want to see a despot. You want to see me act autocratic and downright dictatorial. Let me catch hide or hair that you're turning the church into an unsafe environment because of your political views. I will spank you and spank you hard. Now, I'm not going to physically spank you, but I'm going to spank you and spank you hard. Church has a higher calling. We are first and foremost bought with his blood, sanctified by his blood, made holy by his spirit. And you are my brother and my sister, no matter what your political party happens to be or how you particularly vote in one um, election or another. We teach biblical principles, and then we trust you to go and figure out how that works in a democratic society. One last thing, Jesus is not impressed with democracy. He is not committed to democracy. He is a king. He doesn't get elected every four years. All right, enough on that, Joyce. Well, we have one question here asking, why wine and what kind of wine was it? Ah. Okay, so this is a great question. This is easy for me to deal with. First of all, there is no question in my mind, okay? Now, this is opinions. We can't prove anything, but there's no question in my mind that you had that they had wine. And there's a couple of reasons. Number one, grapes would ferment because they had no refrigeration. So the idea of grape juice and, and all of that, it's going to ferment. Second of all, you wanted it to ferment because back in that day, polluted water was a problem. So fermentation would not allow some of the things that would make you sick in water to be sick, okay? Because the fermentation would kill it. Now, if you're thinking, and again, now I'm going to get me into trouble. Those of you that have have experience with alcohol, I have none, okay? I couldn't get past, I'd pick up cans off the road on the front of the church uh, before service would start. People on Friday nights and Saturday nights would throw their beer cans and I couldn't get it past my nose, folks. I've told this story many times. I'd, you know, curious kid. I'd, I wasn't looking to drink it. I just was curious and Oh, it stunk to the high heaven. So all of you that learned how to drink it, it's like coffee. I, you must have acquired the taste. Blech, I want nothing to do with it. We're not talking high levels of fermentation here. I'm not saying they couldn't get high levels of fermentation, but that's not what we're talking here. But the idea that we're dealing with wine that was not fermented, nah, I don't buy that at all. However, I also do not think, I think you're pushing the point too far. Uh, with regard to the idea that it must be fermented wine in order to remember it. Now you're getting very literal. Jesus used physical symbols to remind us. And it happened to be that what would he have had there? He would have had wine. 
So we, the reason that we don't use wine, we use grape juice, is so that we do not cause a stumbling block to those within our society that that little drink trying to celebrate the Lord would trip them back into a lifestyle of addiction. And we're just not going to do it. Anything that causes my brother or sister to stumble, I'm going to find a way to refrain from it if at all possible. And that one's an easy one. That one's an easy one. But the idea of, is it really wine? Absolutely. Without question, there is no reason biblically and historically to think it was anything but that. In fact, Paul even tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, because it would actually have helped him. He probably had digestion problems. And we know that wine can calm that down. Okay. So the idea, in fact, it's, it's really funny. We have more scripture telling us to drink wine than we do to say not drink wine. However, we have the principle we have the principle of not being of this world and the instruction multiple times of not being drunk, of not being given to excess, that in our society today, it seems to me to be a very reasonable accommodation that we, alcoholic drink, that's going to take us to a type of party that is not in submission to the spirit. I hope I answered that right, Joyce. I think I think I covered what they were asking. I think so. So how can we be careful to not limit celebrating and honoring God only to certain holidays? And um, so we don't cheat Jesus and focus only on Christmas or Easter. Yeah, yeah. So here's, here's two things that I think are going on here. Number one is, yeah, we should be living a life that's full of joy. Okay? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Okay? But one of the things, the unique things is, is special times have an added something because they are not the same as normal. So for my family, let me take a human example to then talk about a spiritual application. Let's be honest. Why vacation in Vermont is so much fun and special for my family is because that's not what we do normally. If it was, we'd go do something else. But where we live, as you all know, occasionally we'll get a lot of snow, but not usually. And so we go to Vermont and, and, and if everything's going right, uh, this climate change has affected it some in the last few years, but if it's going right, we're getting three feet of snow every week. So we're up there for two weeks, we're getting six feet of snow. Besides the fact that when we get there, there usually is already tons of snow. That's not the way we normally live. We stay at a place that's not where we normally live. We do things while we're there that we don't normally do, or we do them in excess even. Like every day we sleep in. Every night we stay up till the late hours of the night, like way late at night. We play games all the time. We eat junk food all the two weeks, like just horrible. Why? Because it's part of the party. And part of the key to that is that it's different. So we should live a life of joy at all times. But then there are times God likes a party, he likes a festival, he likes a celebration because it's different. And that's really why we also try to find a balance in celebrating the Lord's Supper, that we don't do it every service because we feel it would be get ordinary. So we try to do it frequent enough that it's not ordinary, but not infrequent enough that it becomes 
this almost unapproachable event, which I think for many of us, that may be what has happened. And over the last few years, I've tried to very, very strongly redeem communion. That's what, even why I took the Bible study tonight. As we set this out, I was like, yeah, give me that. Let me go at that again, one more time to try to redeem it back to us and say, hey, let's make this more approachable. Let's make this more embraceable. Okay. I'm actually searching for more questions here, but I think that we got them all so far. Oh, come on, people. You got to have something more for me. Somebody throw me something. I got nine minutes. I mean, I guess I could leave you out early, but come on. Even if it's contentious, let's have a little fun. I like tough questions. I don't have any problem with tough questions. In fact, I... Can I tell you a secret? I much prefer Wednesday nights and Friday nights to the other broadcasts. I don't mind doing the other broadcasts. In fact, I got a couple coming up that I'm very excited about. I was working on them today. Um, you'll see them when I come on the broadcast. But I like these because I like the interactive element. In fact, one of my favorite things to do with teenagers was to not come in and actually teach a lesson, but just ask the pastor questions. I did this for all the time I've pastored at Newark. I come to youth classes, and it's very popular because, I don't know, maybe it's my personality and my style, but I love having somebody try to stump me. It's kind of invigorating for me, you know, and teenagers are great. They'll ask off the wall questions. And once they figure out that pastor Steve will say anything, oh my goodness, then they go all kinds of crazy places and they're looking to see whether I'm shocked or embarrassed or, and try to embarrass me. I dare you, anybody go for it. Good luck. <laughs> okay. If anybody wants to submit an embarrassing question, <laughs> then go I, will, I will answer it. If it's a legit, now, if you're asking me a stupid question, I will be kind to you, but otherwise, any others that come in? Not yet. All right. Let me return back to then real quick and, and talk about, because uh, this is something that maybe somebody hasn't thought of or that. One of the things that we have to remember about scripture is, is that scripture is being written down by humans. Okay. So how many of you have ever heard a preacher misquote a verse of scripture? I know I have misquoted a verse of scripture. I mean, I've done it before. I've said it wrong. Uh, and so did it take away from the truth of what that preacher spoke? Now, I'm not talking about a preacher needs to get up and just totally make something up or even try to misquote scripture. But when you misquote scripture, and in fact, even our young preachers and our young speakers, uh, they'll, they'll make mistakes all the time. In fact, uh, as some of us have come on the broadcast, I'm quite sure that some of you that have been around for a while have heard some of the speakers and went, uh, that's not quite right. You didn't quite get that one correct. But you still can hear truth within the midst of that. In other words, truth is never overwhelmed by the humanity that delivers it. Because God is truth. So the thing that I brought to you, the thing that I shared with you, where my opinion is, is that the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually represent a Jewish way of looking at the Lord's Supper and kind of mashing it in with Passover and thinking it's the same, even though there seems to be, if you read carefully, particularly John, and even in Mark, this point that it happened on the day of preparation, some people look at that and go, well, then how, how do we trust the Bible is true? Seriously? I don't want to be condescending here, and I don't want to be rude, but seriously? So you demand that God somehow makes a human not human. 
in order to speak to you. Well, there's a problem there. If God makes the humans not human, how are you going to hear them? This is the whole problem of revelation. This is why God has had to put his revelation into scripture so you could read it, into human voice so you could hear it, because you can't hear God. You cannot approach God directly. You are sinful, you are broken, and you and I are limited. So God's truth, even though it travels through limited conduit, does not become limited by it. What's the point? The point is not whether the Passover was the Lord's Supper or the opposite way. You can get to what is really going on here either way. And by the way, that's where preachers and teachers need to be real honest about things that they have opinions about versus things that are locked down and are pretty clear within Scripture. And I always try to do that, and I teach those that work with me as well. Use opinion. Opinion's not going to kill you. And, uh, and, and listening to diverse opinions about Scripture is not a problem. There are truths that are not debatable, and then there are those that, no, we don't totally know. There's a little bit of unknown there. Like, if you ever figure out who the Nephilim are, you know, the guys who came down and did something with the daughters of men and produced giants, you let me know. I wrote no less than four graduate school papers trying to figure that out. Never did. Never did. Because we're missing some pieces. There's a backstory there. So that doesn't take away from the truth of scripture though. All right, I'm babbling on. Do we have more questions or am I, do I need to babble on some more? <laughs> we have more questions. Um, ah, there we go. I knew you yeah. guys could do it. Now I got four minutes and I'm going to have to pack all these questions in. All right, let's go, Joyce. Okay. With the fact that we have so many different opinions or interpretations of how we celebrate or the actual time frame of Passover and Last Supper, how do we decide or determine which way we should celebrate? Okay, I'm not sure I totally follow, and this is going to be hard here, so this person might need to touch base with me offline, about the different ways. I'm not sure, because in, in my, there is nothing, Jesus did not specify how often we were to do it. Unlike the Passover, where it very clearly is once a year at the point when it happened, at, in, in the first of the month of Abib. Um, we were not, Jesus basically said, as often as you do this. So you can do it frequently. You can do it infrequently. Whenever you do it, you're celebrating. So that's the only diversity that I think there is involved with that. Again, the question, which I highlighted, because I don't want any of you getting caught off guard. Some people will make a big deal out of something. It's not a big deal. Was, in fact, the Lord's Supper a Passover meal? It doesn't matter either way, because as I pointed out to you, Jesus was pointing it forward. This is about when the kingdom of God is coming. So he's, even if it was a Passover meal, he had taken that Passover meal and made it not be about the Exodus anymore, but made it about Calvary, made it about the coming of the kingdom. Um, the diversity over whether you use unleavened bread or leavened bread, whether you use wine or you use grape juice, I honestly don't, I think we're missing the point if those become stumbling blocks. I think those decisions are made as best we know how, being aware of our brothers and sisters, and then we celebrate. And again, if I missed the point of that question, whoever it is that wrote that, write me an email or give me a call, and I'll talk it through with you further. Because I, 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 I'm not, there's not huge, in my mind, there's not huge controversy, A, about when we celebrate it, because you can do it as frequent or infrequent as you want. We try to in Newark strike it a balance 
usually four to five, six times a year. Um, and then the other, the only other is, is whether you use leavened or unleavened bread and whether you use wine or, or, or grape juice. Okay. Okay. So why do you think the church tends to ignore obvious things that God said to do? Like, you know, don't live in fear, but we tend to live in fear a lot of times or celebrate and we kind of just pull the joy out of it. Yeah. Uh, I think the answer, and I, I'm sorry to be glib with my answer here. It's going to sound like I'm being glib, but it's our humanity. It's our humanity. Um, it's very understandable why we live in fear. We live in fearful times, but then Christ calls us to say, get your eyes up, look at it differently. Um, it's very understandable that we, we are so burdened at times by our falling short of his glory, that the idea of celebrating based in what is coming, what has already been purchased, but has not yet been fulfilled, the now, but not yet aspect of the gospel. So it's understandable. It's our humanity. And I think that's why God has these things to keep pulling us, not to condemn us. We don't go around being condemned, but rather to pull us out of that, to kind of call us out of that. So if any of you are, are taking my message to you, for instance, about communion and going, oh, I've celebrated communion for years and I've always cried and I've weeped and I've never celebrated. Oh, what a horrible Christian I am. Whoa, you missed my point. That, no, 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 no. It's not about condemning in the past. It's about recognizing and allowing the scriptures to call us to what he has called us to do. And God knows we're broken. God knows we're human. And he has not lost patience, thankfully. Thankfully. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. That cover it? Yes. Well, we're yeah. at the top of the hour, everybody. I hope you enjoyed tonight. And uh, be sure to join us uh, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. We'll have the closing message, the last sermon, the last message for this series, looking at festivals and party. And then we've got an exciting new series that'll be starting. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. You'll find out about it if you tune in on Saturday night at 7 p.m. Friday night's going to be a great time. I have actually personal friends of mine, Rick and Stacy Perry. If you have been with us uh, a few weeks ago, we had Stacy as well as Alana um, come on to two MKs. And so we're going to pick up the story about Rick Perry and how he got to missions and then kind of how he met Stacy. So we'll get a little bit of a love story and then how they did missions work. And in fact, had their children on the missions field before coming back to establish a church and pastor a church in New Haven, um, Connecticut. So looking forward to that Friday night. So tomorrow night, seven o'clock. And then Friday night, seven o'clock as well, Friday night with friends. If you're new with us, thank you for being with us. It has been an honor to have you. I hope that you've learned tonight, grown. It's been an encouragement to you. If you'd like to learn more about us, don't already know about us, go to Newark UPC. That's Newark UPC, as in Newark United Pentecostal Church, but just don't spell it all out, newarkupc.info. There you can partners, partner with us in giving. If you haven't been baptized, you can submit a baptismal request, prayer request, praise request, as well as join a small group, find out about all the information. You can go back into our archives and hear previous messages, audio, video. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff there. And uh, so don't, don't hesitate. Any questions you've got, you can reach out to us through there. And uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you, church, for being with us. I hope you've learned tonight. And to everybody, have a great night. God bless. Be safe. And we'll see you tomorrow night. Good night. Good night.